0: This week, no particular album, no particular artist. That's because we're speaking to Dr. Demento. Thank you for being with us this week.
1: Oh, nice to be here, Jason.
0: Um, first of all, I mean, you know, I I think goes without saying, it's an honor to have you here. and But it's also kind of overwhelming because I don't know, I, I didn't know originally what what i should concentrate on but i uh, i did get a little advice from a friend of the show dan pasternak who said make sure you talk to him about this this and this so w- we will go over a few things that i might not have necessarily thought to ask you about um, very good let so you started collecting you started collecting records i was going to say vinyl but that's not necessarily true you started collecting records when you were about 12 is that right
1: Uh, Yeah, Uh, actively when I was 12, my folks had a lot of records, so uh, the record player became my favorite toy at a very early stage in life. They Mm -hmm. taught me how to operate it when I was four years old, and at that time, uh, vinyl wasn't quite in the picture yet. Uh, Most records were 78s made out of shellac. This was the late 1940s, and uh, so, uh, but uh, I I started uh, asking them for a little money to buy certain favorite records when I was maybe eight. First one that I actually specifically asked for was Lavender Blue Dilly Dilly by Burl Ives. Uh Uh, We had seen the film So Dear to My Heart, a Disney live action film, and uh, Burl Ives sang that song in the movie. So uh, I wanted a record of it and they obliged and... uh... Uh, then they started getting me other records, and, and of course they gave me full access to what they had, uh, and uh, my dad brought home every so often a new Spike Jones record. The first one that I remember was Cocktails for Two, which came out when I was four, so that's about right, and uh, every maybe a couple of times a year he'd bring home another new one, and we'd listen to Spike Jones on the radio. So. Uh, that was my introduction, really, to funny records, uh, that, uh, along with Arthur Godfrey, my mother would listen to him when she did her ironing in the morning, mm-hmm. and of course he made uh, some records, of which uh, some were certainly of uh, comedy, humorous songs, the Too Fat Polka was a favorite, and uh, so <laughs> that was some of the first funny stuff that I heard on records.
0: It's so, all right. Well, I, th- that's that's one of my first questions. Usually, is I, I always want to know. You know, did you did you live in a funny family? Was it your family that introduced you to comedy? And I guess that that definitely answers that.
1: Yeah, right. I I won't say that they were hardcore comedy fans. Sure. They were, they were into culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had season tickets to the symphony. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were involved in the management of the art museums there uh, as volunteers, and. Uh, they were both voracious readers, so that's kind of what I was raised with.
0: Well, and that's the interesting thing, too, is, I mean, you say hardcore comedy fan, and, you know, <clears throat> you expect people to use the, the phrase comedy nerd now. I think you kind of invented what it means to be a comedy nerd, because you were one of the first people archiving it so voraciously.
1: Yes. Uh, it, it started just as kind of a crazy left turn that my career took. Uh, through the 50s, I liked all kinds of music, of mm-hmm. the current top 40, especially when rock and roll started coming in. I loved that. And uh, I, I, I went to the Salvation Armory every week where they had 78s for a nickel apiece, all kinds of stuff. Uh, fairly recent and going way back to pretty much the beginning of records. So uh, I taught myself uh, by sampling this and that uh, what was amusing and what was entertaining in other ways I I picked up all kinds of things but never really specialized in comedy uh to the I mean above and beyond everything else until the opportunity came to do the Dr. Demento show yeah now uh I was known as something of an expert on the early days of rock and roll. I had written about it for Rolling Stone and Hit Parader, Mm -hmm. this was in the late 60s, so when I got invited to play some records and tell a few stories on a local FM radio station, uh, they eventually invited me to do my own rare rock and roll oldie show. But novelty records were always a part of that. Sure. I'd always play one or two, because uh, going back to the 50s, when uh, at any given time, there was usually at least one novelty record on the charts, whether it was Flying Saucer by Buchanan and Goodman, or Transfusion by Nervous Norvis, all kinds of things like that. Mm-hmm. So I would stick some of those in, and uh, people would ask for more of those. I, I, I started to notice that Novelty records were dominating the requests that I get when I'd ask, What would you like to hear? What would you like to have me bring along from my collection next week? Mm-hmm. And the more of those funny records that I played, the more popular the show got. So, without really intending it that way, the Dr. Demento show turned into a funny music show and spoken comedy too. And uh, that transformation happened gradually over maybe the course of a year year and a half or so Mm
0: Mm-hmm. and you you now did you start you started in radio around 1970 is that right
1: 1970 was when i was first when i was first invited to be a regular guest on the obscene stephen clean show on kppc Mm -hmm. fm pasadena and uh my, my uh, weekly appearances became very popular, so they gave me my own show in the spring of 71. And it was Stephen who gave me the name Dr. Demento, credit where credit is due there.
0: That's that's wonderful. Now,
1: what was your,
0: well, I, I hate to say angle, but I can't think of another. What was your angle for your show? Was it, I just want to play stuff that I'm interested in and I'd like to, to expose other people to it? I mean, that tends to be the MO of most DJs, but...
1: Yeah, that's that's what it was. Uh, they gave me free rein to play mm-hmm. uh, anything that I liked. Uh, at first, it was rare rock and roll oldies, but uh-huh. uh, then it became the funny stuff. And uh, if it brought in the people and uh, people, the listeners seemed to enjoy it. The station was uh, certainly fine with that. So,
0: well, and uh, you've got this academic background also of of you know putting this heavy analytic analytical head to. To music to quote-unquote straight music but I know that you've got to vet all this you know all these songs and these tracks for your own show um, mm-hmm. do you put I mean is it the same kind of analysis or is it the same I, I'm just curious how, how is there a comparison to me be made to how you might oh, do the
1: definitely a comparison I mean on my show today I will. I, I might explain the background, how a certain record came to be, and in some cases perhaps explain a couple of the references that might be lost to the myths of time. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't give it the same academic, uh, the same extensive academic background that I might get, like if I were to write some liner or booklet notes for an album of uh, old blues, mm-hmm. something like that. Right. I I wouldn't go into quite that much detail because I'm I'm there on the radio. And uh, for all those years, I was in commercial radio. So there was some kind of, uh, I won't say pressure, well, maybe (laughs) I will say pressure, uh, to keep it lively, to keep it up, to keep it interesting, to keep people from being tempted to wander down the dial to KLOS.
0: Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, is it, was there ever, I mean, was there ever a, a moment, well, now that you're not in, you know, on terrestrial radio, do you get uh, to be more analytical or is there any interest in being more analytical of stuff that is novelty?
1: Oh, a little bit. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't feel the need to go quite as fast these days. And I, mm. I maybe get a little bit deeper into my collection. Sure. Uh, play like instead of just uh, for nervous Norvis, instead of just transfusion and ape call, I might go into uh, some of his lesser known cuts now and then. Same uh-huh. with uh, Spike Jones or people like that. What is and, and I play I play also a little more older things. Uh, when the show got syndicated nationally, we were dealing with program directors from all over the country and. Some of them would get a little impatient and nervous if I played too much stuff that was, like, from before the rock era. Oh, okay. Especially if it was things where it was obvious that the recording was made a long time ago. Sure. Uh, What's, I mean, what's the oldest, what's the oldest thing that you have
0: in your collection?
1: Oh, I have a few uh, Berliner. 78s, actually, the the speed is anywhere from 60 to 90. (laughs) They weren't very consistent. Uh Uh, Of various kinds of music from uh, just before the turn of the century, 1897 is the oldest one. So those are the oldest actual original hard copies that that I have here in my collection. I, I have sound files of things that are a little older than that.
0: Right, right. Uh, did you ever feel a need to or try to delve into collecting anything older did you do you own any cylinders
1: um, i have a few just to show people what they look like okay. it's it's not a not something that i specialize in i i tend to get more excited about records uh, from 1925 onward when electrical recording came in and they could record sound and music more realistically than they could before
0: and they could be more consistent too right because at some point i know that it was almost impossible to replicate especially cylinders they, they had to do you know 100 <clears throat> 100 different sessions just to make enough to sell them right
1: in the real early days yes before they figured out how to mass produce them yeah well that's one of the reasons that uh, one of several reasons that uh, discs won the format war and cylinders were left behind uh, because it was much easier to mass produce discs they figured out how to do it with cylinders but it was trickier
0: right yeah i can imagine i mean it's just easy enough just to if you're going to make a mold of something just put something putting it on something flat was probably a heck of a lot easier to replicate any fidelity okay that makes sense um so i so then do you make a distinction, and maybe maybe you can clarify it for me, between novelty and – because the thing is, I feel like if, if you say novelty, people might immediately turn off in their heads. And whereas yeah, maybe you say comedy, they won't. for that
1: reason – go ahead.
0: Sorry, no, but it, whereas maybe if they say comedy, they won't, or maybe if they even I, – I know people will turn off if they hear comedy too, but even comedy snobs might turn off if they hear novelty.
1: Yeah, well, that word has had many different meanings through the years. Uh, In the 50s, the record companies started using it as a word for funny songs, and occasionally, uh, like, quirky instrumentals Mm -hmm. that came out on 45s. And some of these became overnight hits, but they had a a tendency to have a rather short shelf life. Right. And it was because of that that uh, novelty kind of became a, a little bit of a a disparaging word with many in the record business and with many collectors as well. But I, I don't feel any problem using it nowadays on my show since I'm, I'm not competing with the next station down the block and I don't, I'm not, people who listen to my show, I know most of them pretty well, pretty much like what I'm doing and For I sure. don't feel the need to defend it.
0: Right, which is nice, and and that's one of those things where I, I feel like because I, I there are occasions where I I felt the need to defend maybe artists that I love, even even you know somebody as as popular as Weird Al, where I've had to make the distinction and try to explain to people that just because the word novelty is in there doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's uh, e- ephemeral either.
1: Right, so I tend to use the word novelty to mean things from the what I might call the golden age of novelty records, mm-hmm. roughly from the mid-50s to the mid-60s. Yeah. When at any given time, there was generally uh, something like the Purple People Eater or sure. the Monster Mash or some lesser thing along the same line on the charts.
0: Right. What's funny, too, is I mean, I know that you've picked songs like maybe Charlie Brown, which in my head, I would never, it would never have occurred to me was considered a novelty record just because it seems like straight rock and roll to me.
1: Yeah, well, except that the words are humorous. Sure. Not uh, the same with many of the Coasters records. I don't think Lieber and Stoller who wrote and produced those, I don't think they especially like to have them called novelty records, but right. uh, I have no trouble calling them that.
0: Right, right. Is so it, at that point was it do you, was the line between novelty and like quote unquote serious music blurred the most in the 50s and 60s where it was easier to get get something on the air?
1: Oh, well, I don't know if it was easier to get stuff on the air. Maybe it was compared to today. Uh, I don't know if this is specifically your question, but I I don't worry too much about drawing lines between different categories of any kind of music. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to sometimes when filing stuff. The blues is over there, and the uh, middle of the road, as they used to call it, is over there. They're on different shelves in my record room. Yeah. But uh, I try not to be too concerned with, with drawing the line. Like uh, Ray Charles, where do you put him? Sure. Is he R&B? Is he middle of the road? <laughs> Is he even country? Right. You know, uh, so... Uh, He's in the middle of the road section, but uh, he may not be too comfortable there, but I had to put him somewhere, so that's where he is.
0: No, of course, yeah, I I mean, that's uh, as far as, yeah, like you say, in terms of filing something, of course, you do need to make some kind of distinctions. I guess I meant because we don't hear enough comedy stuff on on the, you don't hear a lot of anything on the radio, but you, uh, you don't hear a whole lot of comedy on the radio, and it seemed like that was, it was just part of the programming at that point.
1: Right, well... On my show, I don't have to worry about that too much. Sure. Of course.
0: Um, if uh, if we if we go back to the beginning of recorded sound, obviously the, the first stuff that was ever recorded was, you know, first of all, they were experiments. I mean, Mary had a little lamb, although that's not the first thing that was ever recorded, much as Edison might have liked us to think it was. Um, I mean, do, is there anything going back in, in sort of that the, that far back? Like, was there anything experimental or brief that was comedic? Cause I mean, I went to film school and I know there are plenty of small, short experimental films that were comedic, a guy getting kicked in the butt. That's easy to translate, but uh, is there anything back that far, the early, early, early days that we could be considered comedy?
1: Well, it was uh, real early on that a guy named Cal Stewart became popular. Uh, he was a monologist. Uh you might call him a stand-up comedian, he did perform in auditoriums. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had this character called Uncle Josh, who was a New England farmer, kind of what we might call a hayseed. Uh-huh. Uh, he was rural and uh, not not a city guy, uh, but he did all these comedy routines, these stand-up bits, which in many cases were about his Uncle Josh's experiences with Things from the city with new inventions. Uh, He'd go into New York and he'd do a a story about encountering a a Chinese laundry or a department store or something like that. And Uh there'd usually be something uh, funny about uh, what would happen to him, or uh, he would have some insights about what was going on there. Okay. Now, Uncle Josh in a Chinese laundry is downright racist sure I had a feeling most of the others are, are pretty innocent <laughs> Uncle he has a I think my favorite pieces of him are about when he, he got his first car his first automobile
0: and this is going back how far
1: uh, he started just before the turn of the century wow. and uh, was certainly the best-selling comedy artist and one of the best-selling artists period uh, until he died wow. uh, in in Right in the peak of his career, I think it was 1920 or 21 that he died, Jeez. rather suddenly. But right up until then, uh, he sold tons of records.
0: That's amazing. I, again, that's, uh, this is the kind of thing, because I, I think my, what I, my, I anticipated your answer to be was that it would be some kind of comedic music. Because, you know, I've got a few old cylinder recordings, not actual cylinders, but, you know, MP3s of cylinder recordings, and most of them were musical, most of them were ethnic. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Uh which well uh, you have people singing the Tin Pan Alley hits of the day that sure. you start getting that right away uh, there were certain things were easier to record than others uh, Uncle Josh was real easy to record he just talked most yeah. of the time he had a few songs where they'd have a piano player but most of the time he just talked and so and there were other singers like Billy Murray is the another name that you you deal with in the early days of recording. He started right around the turn of the century and remained popular up until, oh, the early 30s. Uh, Billy Murray sang just about every kind of song there was, but Uh he specialized in comedy songs, the the funny songs that Tin Pan Alley produced. And uh, he was noted because he could learn a song quickly and because he could enunciate clearly on those early record players on on the wind-up Victrolas and so on it's not always easy to understand the lyrics
0: sure
1: but he he kind of if just subtly kind of overpronounced things so that you could always understand the lyrics even if he was doing a fairly fast-paced patter type of funny song uh the first one of his that comes to mind is he'd have to get under get out and get under to fix up his automobile uh, once again, there were, there are funny songs about cars too.
0: I feel like i that one, that one maybe I've heard. It's what's interesting too, is, is the, the kind of limitations we don't have. I mean, people, we got it easy now. Anybody who does comedy now, we don't really have a technical technological limitation to work with like that. It kind of blows my mind right. that somebody was able to translate comedy at all.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, funny records were big sellers, like right from the beginning. And, uh, those two guys cal stewart and and billy murray would be at the head of the pack but there were of course uh, quite a few others Uh, al jolson did a funny song now and then and uh, he became uh, one of the the biggest sellers oh right around 1912 he started
0: yeah um so uh i'm thinking so when you went and you were buying these old when you first went you would go to the Salvation Army, I mean, it sounds like, from from what I've read, and I don't know how accurate it is, it just sounds like your record collection kind of exploded in your early teens.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> especially after I got to Los Angeles uh-huh. is probably really when it exploded. Okay. Uh, I couldn't go to the Salvation Army and get records for a nickel anymore, but uh, they still had some for a quarter, but I was you know, I had a job, I could spend a little more so I sure. could collect a little more actively mm-hmm. rather than just subsisting on what I found in thrift shops.
0: Were you, and are you, uh, how, uh, how, um, I mean, how discriminating are you? Are, or at the time, was it more just discovering you buy everything you saw?
1: Yeah. For, for years it was like that. And, uh, it was, uh, I have, I have kind of, backed off a little bit on my collecting in recent years sure for 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 a number of reasons I I have there are more records in this house than I could ever listen to uh you know I'm in my 70s (laughs) than I could ever listen to yeah at any time well I'm still able to put a record on the record player so so I, I you know I'm I'm starting to confront that sure uh whereas I used to think well I'll keep all these records. I'll get around to listening to them sometime.
0: Right. Well, And I'm myself, I'm having that problem, and I've only got about 300 records in the collection, which I'm sure would be satisfying to see with with the the millions I'm sure you have sitting around. But, yeah, even then, I'm just, I don't know how I'm going to get to all of them. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm sure I'll do it.
1: Yeah, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I no longer feel the pressure to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is it, it, well, then what, at
0: this point, then what's going to make make the deciding factor for you where I'm going to sit down, I'm going to give this one a shot. I've never heard it before.
1: Well, new stuff keeps coming in. Yeah. Uh, Not on vinyl anymore, but uh, new stuff keeps coming in. And the majority of the listening time, that's related to the show, is listening to uh, what people send me on CD and on MP3, mostly.
0: When did that start? When did people start submitting stuff? Was it your choice to have people submit stuff, or did they just start doing it?
1: Oh, they just started doing it.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah.
1: It was about three or four years in, uh, after the show had become pretty obviously I was the funny record guy, Uh and uh, so... Uh, at first, people started started sending me tapes of records that they had. Mm-hmm. Other people who had funny records that uh, maybe they hadn't heard on my show, so they'd send me a tape of something they had. Uh, uh, relatively, I mean, there were 45s and 78s and mm-hmm. comedy LPs, all kinds of stuff people would send. And then a couple people started sending me tapes of things that they had recorded themselves. And when I played one of those on the air by the Rotor rooter Good Time Christmas Band, <laughs> uh, that certainly inspired more people to send in stuff like that. Of course. Uh, there was a guy named uh, a teenager at the time, Brad Stanfield, who sent me uh, a song with the, accompanied by his guitar called Waffle Whiffer. And another one called Gumball Wizard, a parody of Pinball Wizard. (laughs) And I thought those were pretty funny and well-recorded, so I played those on the air. And that, in turn, inspired 16-year-old Alfred Yankovic of Linwood, California, to uh, start sending me the songs that he was making up and playing on his accordion, and uh, you know where that went. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's just what's what's interesting though is is that people just <laughs> people assumed and since you're a nice enough guy and you you have discerning taste and you were just like, "Well, no that I mean you, you it's it's cool that it's interesting to hear that when you first started getting them you're like, "Well, let me let me look at these for what they are and see if there's some value and you you even you wanted to make sure it sounded good enough to play on the air." I mean, I'm sure in the ta- in the case of somebody who sends you a, a a grumbly sounding cassette, you had to sort of make a it was kind of a 50-50 shot, even if it was a good song.
1: Uh, yes, there's lots of borderline involved, lots of things that were marginal Yeah. Uh, with records that I've found and uh, all kinds of things that I've listened to, and especially with the tapes, that the unsolicited tapes that started coming, and uh, dozens dozens of them every week. It became a major part of my day to listen to all those things. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes I'd hear 10 or 12 mediocre ones in a row and i had to really force myself to <laughs> listen to the next one and then right. that might be the great one for that week yeah so uh, a lot a lot of that uh, and still today maybe not quite as much as there was but but still still a lot of that so and uh sound quality does enter into it to some point i, I don't insist that everything uh sound like it was recorded at abbey road sure. but uh uh, it has to be intelligible. We're dealing with comedy here. You have to be able to understand the words. And there are people who don't understand that, especially people like who maybe came out of the punk movement and decided <laughs> to do a funny punk song. But then it's... Aah! You can't understand any of the words. <laughs> uh, but Al... El- Alf, Alfred Yankovic understood that from the very beginning. He was using very cheap equipment when he started, but uh, he, I guess through trial and error or something, uh, knew from the very first tape that he sent me how to make his words come through, how to link words to music, how, how to write words so that they fit the tune. Uh, a lot of things that a lot of people still don't know today, but uh, he at age 16 had that down.
0: It's amazing. Uh, you know, I, I I do feel like I uh, there's there's a part of my teenagehood that was, I, I, I hugely missed out. Because I grew up in upstate New York in a place where we didn't have a whole lot of exposure to much outside of upstate New York. So we didn't have your show. Nobody near me carried your show. It wasn't a thing I, so I didn't hear about, I think I got a compilation of yours when I was a teenager. It was one that had um, Henry Phillips on it. And that's the first time oh, okay. I ever knew of you. And there was some newer stuff, definitely some older stuff. and I, I've been trying to put the put through my head what it was like to listen to your show because sure you're a nice guy, but you also get to, you know, you play a bit of a character on the radio. you do this one particular thing and I've been trying to figure it out what makes people like me, mostly nerds, what makes them love listening to your show so much And I do there's just something about, At least for me, it's this discovering of something that only this one other person knows about. And it's this pact between the listener and Dr. Demento. Did you ever sort of get that feeling from your fans to just like, thank you for sharing this thing with me and nobody else knows about it, even though tons of other people have heard it?
1: Well, people would say things like that when they'd write me letters or Mm -hmm. when they'd meet me in person. I never spent a whole lot of time analyzing what made that relationship tick. Sure. I just uh, had something that I did and it and still do and it gradually developed. I do the best I can at it every week and, uh, There's little decisions to be made, and occasionally big ones, as to which way I'm going to go with something, but uh, I just try to do the best I can. I don't spend a lot of time analyzing it. Of course. Yeah. I have to leave that to other people who can uh, see the phenomenon from outside, or whatever. (laughs) And uh, eventually, I had uh, people that managed me, and they would make suggestions sometimes, which were sometimes helpful when i got uh, when i got over to kmet a, a bigger more commercial station uh, they would sometimes make suggestions as to how best to keep people enjoying my show and, and not tune me out and uh, tune uh, kmet was the big rock station in town but their arch rival klos was right next to it on the dial so it was pretty easy for people to switch back and forth so right. uh, they made me aware of that and to keep the the pace going and to not wander too far afield from what the mass of my, what the largest part of my audience liked. Uh, so I, you know, when uh, Fish Heads and Dead Puppies came along, I was aware that those were hits and right. I would look for more songs like that and uh, I would uh, play those songs uh, fairly often. you know many many songs uh, would only come up like once a year or once every five years but uh, right. i was aware of the value of uh, playing fish heads and dead puppies fairly often of course now that i'm on uh, internet radio and uh dealing mostly with people who already have those songs in their collections i don't have to play them that often uh, but uh, at that time i realized that there were certain things that uh, the audience clearly liked uh, things that were fairly fast moving and musically somewhat comprehensible Uh, and uh, in the late in the 70s especially a certain fairly large part of my audience loved drug songs. Oh sure. Especially about marijuana. Mm -hmm. And uh, so something that was clever about smoking weed was probably going to get a pretty good reaction from my audience at that time yeah because they were they were rock fans uh you you tend to think of the rock music of the 70s and 80s as classic rock because the stations that uh, we have today that play that music they're classic rock stations uh, the sound and klos but uh, but at that time it was new music yeah did you so people who like that mostly uh, the audience skewed male and tended to be in their teens and 20s, people who would uh, certainly pick up every new Aerosmith album, and those were a lot of the same people, though not all of the same people, who enjoyed my show. So I was thinking of that kind of person, though I certainly also had uh, people who were much older, or a little bit younger, and had uh, more, ta- more tastes that were a little bit esoteric, uh, not so mainstream, and I tried to keep those people happy, too, yeah so I, and i still I'm still that way, you might say.
0: Did you have anybody helping? I mean, being I don't want to use the term taste maker, but I just did. but being somebody who gets to deliver, this stuff personally to people i mean that's i think that's one of the reasons it means it reasons it means so much to people is because they've got this one guy who they feel like they can relate to who's giving them this thing that feels like it it, it is kind of a gift even if you're repeating it it's something it's you know you there are there are those evergreen songs uh did you have somebody when you were a teenager giving you this stuff or was it just a very personal thing for you was it only you
1: it was self-discovery i mean when i was a kid there was my parents, mm-hmm. and uh, when I started buying records at the Salvation Army, uh, my my father had passed away by that time, but my mother would, uh, of course, talk to me. She, she would notice that I had brought home something that was popular when she was a kid, or when she was a young adult, and she'd tell me about it, so, so that helped. Uh, outside of that though i pretty much taught myself on my own i mean there there, there weren't a lot of books about it there was uh, one book the uh, which covered popular music the history of popular music in america which had been written in the late 40s uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> went and was pretty thorough up to that point and so that helped put things in context but uh, nowadays on the internet you can read about darn near everything when i was when i was younger I used to run across records by Henry Burr all the time. He was—he was a pop singer who appealed to an older audience at that time. He sang a lot of sentimental songs. So, uh, a, a lot of the, the, when I got to know other collectors, they'd always say, "Henry Burr, get rid of that. That's junk," <laughs> uh, because they they like jazz or blues or at least something that was more entertaining to them than okay. hearing. Henry Burr sings some sentimental song that uh, <laughs> older people liked in 1920. Right. But uh, nowadays, on the internet, there are people who like Henry Burr, and you can read all about him.
0: Yeah, I mean uh, that's just it. I mean, you you got to have. It was when it was okay to have an interest in old things, and people weren't necessarily going to crap on you for it. But it, although I mean, it sounds like you had to put up with a little bit of that, but you 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 stuck with it because of this just this this unquenchable interest in in music.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to know something about all the forms of music that had been popular in this country. In this country, at least. uh, Sure. Through the whole history of records.
0: Why did that mean so much to to you?
1: Why does it mean so much to me? Oh, curiosity, I guess. I I guess it's a thirst for knowledge or something like that. I want to know uh, what... What got people excited at different times in our history?
0: Yeah, and, and and it's something that you can personally experience because you can grab a copy of it usually.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: I was going to ask you about as far as can can you play this older stuff? Do you have a machine to play everything that you want, or do you need to? No. I,
1: I do not own a cylinder player. Sure. Uh, but but I I know people who do. Mm-hmm. How about I mean playing I the old shellac ones? I don't collect ones? cylinders, so so I've, I've no it's just i have to draw a line somewhere
0: sure sure uh what, what about the, the uh, old shellac records though
1: yeah oh i can play those I've, I've certainly put a lot of effort into getting equipment that can play those uh, pretty nicely yeah I, I know people who devote a large part of their lives to that and uh, uh, restore 78s on a professional basis wow uh, with very expensive sound equipment mm-hmm. uh, i have some pretty specialized stuff uh not quite of, on that level. I haven't spent, a, I, I mean, for a probably ideal system for like recording 78s for reissue, uh, you can easily spend two or three grand. And I haven't gone that far, yeah. but I have spent, oh, uh, several hundred dollars w- for an assortment of styli, mm-hmm. different size needles, because uh, you need a wider stylus to play 78s of any kind compared right. to what you play uh microgroove records with. But uh, if you really get into it, you need uh, about half a dozen different sizes of stylus to play records from different eras made by different companies.
0: Are these newer... Are, are the, are the, uh, go ahead, sorry.
1: You, you may have seen... Go ahead. No, I was
0: just going to ask, are the newer ones more durable than the old ones that you could only get a couple plays out of then?
1: Well, they're not steel needles, the, these... Uh, records were originally played with steel needles on the wind-up phonographs, and uh, you're only supposed to use those for one play, okay. though in the old days people often used them until they, they would slide <laughs> across the record, and then they'd finally put a new one in, and that's why some of the old records you find are so badly worn. Right. But, uh, no, these, the, the 78s, I mean, these Special styli that I special order from people who make them will last a long time. Mm. I've had some for 20 years. I mean, if you if you treat them well, uh, use them for with equipment that doesn't have a whole lot of stylus pressure, they'll last a long time. They're diamond styli, just like the ones you'd have in a, a newer stereo. Okay. So. But, uh, like, for instance, you may have seen the quarter-inch thick records that the Edison company made. Yeah. Uh, and uh, those take a different kind of stylus. And also, you have to wire your cartridge differently in order to play those properly. But wow. they can be played on modern equipment. Mm-hmm.
0: That's just, that's great. That's, that's, that, that's dedication to get those things to yes.
1: play. So if I'm going if, if to play an old record, I, I don't want the sound to be any more of an impediment to people enjoying it than it has to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can only do so much with some of those, but I, I want to do what I can, within reason, to make them sound decent so that people won't have to really struggle to, to hear the lyrics, for instance.
0: Sure. Is your, do you, is your method of getting people to listen to stuff that they might not otherwise listen to, such as something that's 100-plus years old, is it just your trademark enthusiasm or is there is there something else that you that you try and use to get people I mean they're they're not a captive audience you know uh so I'm I'm right. curious what you use what what is your technique
1: well uh, I'll like maybe play something that's fairly approachable and fairly contemporary and uh, or that people are really used to hearing on my show mm-hmm. like Shel Silverstein or Tom Lehrer or somebody like that and then maybe lead into something on an older record that is on a similar subject something like that like Tom Lehrer's song bright college days Mm -hmm. uh, can can lead into a 1906 Billy Murray song called college life okay yeah both of them being satires of uh, what it's like to go to college and uh, you listen to college life and uh, as antique as the music sounds you realize that in some ways colleges haven't changed Mm -hmm. Although that song talks quite a bit about hazing, which is uh, certainly something that uh, many colleges are trying to do away with, but it's uh, it's still a fact of college life.
0: Absolutely. That's the other thing, too, is if, you know, there is that inevitable thing where if you delve into this older music, you're going to find stuff that we now consider incredibly racist, incredibly sexist, homophobic, oh, yes. et cetera, et cetera. What do you do? I mean, how do you, I mean, you can't not listen if you're interested in this stuff, though.
1: Right. Uh, I tend to give that a pretty wide berth these days. Yeah. In, in the early days of my show, I did not necessarily do that, but I, I realize as much as I might love to tell my audience about how our culture has changed through the years mm-hmm. and, uh, like what minstrel shows were like, and, sure. uh, uh, and, uh, the, what the songs of that era were like and what people enjoyed and how that maybe reflected our climate of the time. Uh, some of that stuff would just result in more trouble for me than it's worth. Of course. So on the other hand, uh, I, I give lectures sometimes at colleges or to mentor or something like that, and I will get into things like that, knowing that I have an audience that is willing to not get historical if they <laughs> hear the N-word. Right,
0: right. Yeah, we it's I mean it's it's a super fine line but I guess as long as people understand that you're there. I mean, we've you know, we've talked about that kind of stuff on this podcast and I at least try and prepare people that if something like that comes out, we're talking about it analytically, but it is it's really hard if you're talking about entertainment. Yes. Um so you're right. So I I do have a, a copy of Dr. Demento's Delights and I, I, I was look, right. I was looking at it earlier and I was wondering what was it just the most popular stuff or were you putting your own what what where where the decision come from to put each and every one of those tracks on there
1: Well it was a lot of my most popular stuff uh, it it was uh, limited to some extent by what uh, Warner Brothers could license Sure uh, we we uh, licensed some things from other labels, but uh, there was a little bit of a preference shown to things that were in the Warner Brothers catalog that they owned, that they already had the rights to, like uh, "They're Coming to Take Me Away" or mm-hmm. "Hello Mudda, Hello Fada."
0: Sure. Uh,
1: but so, uh, but it's really just a snapshot of uh, what was big on the show at the time. Uh, a couple of things that might not have been huge hits, but that I thought uh, fit fit in nicely and that I would have liked to see on an album. And so like, who put the Benzedrine in Mrs. Murphy's Oval team? I, I thought, yeah. So, yeah.
0: We we, we have we so, have done that album that compilation on here once. One one of our guests did specifically want to talk about it and uh I feel like that's mm-hmm. that's one of the things that got me Reinterested in because again like i i think that might have been his exposure to you same as my exposure to you was from a compilation luckily it was two cds so i got a hell of a lot of music to listen to okay you know but there is that there is something interesting about maybe you have to have a certain mind but that makes you laugh at benny bell when you're 13 or 16 in the 90s that made oh, for sure you know what i mean that made you laugh at it when, you were, when, when did you first hear that song? I mean, I feel like that's one of the most famous old, old, old songs that you play. Uh,
1: shaving Cream? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, the original record of it by uh, Paul Wynn, uh, pre- written and produced by Benny Bell. Mm-hmm. Paul Wynn sang it. Okay. Uh, uh, another collector, a fellow named Brad K, mm-hmm. played it for me. He's mostly a jazz collector, but he had kind of a... He enjoyed the funny stuff, too, and we when he'd find something in the thrift shop... Uh, like that I I think he found his copy of shaving cream in a thrift shop and uh, played it for me and I made a tape of it and so the first few plays on on my show were from that tape but uh, not too long after that I happened to find a copy of it myself at a Salvation Army Mm so it's a Salvation Army in Pomona I happened to be out there and I thought well I'm out here I'm going to go to the Salvation Army and that's where I found that
0: yeah um and then you ended up. I don't. I didn't. I couldn't find what year it was, but you ended up covering it yourself.
1: Yes. Yeah. I. I realized uh, that a good way to wind up one of my live appearances was by singing a song. And I'm. I'm certainly no singer, but that was a song that I could make fit within my range. Mm-hmm. And plus, I could make up new verses to it. I mean, that song was really written. The original sheet music of that has, I think. Thirty some verses wow. printed on
0: it. Wow! <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> of course, there there were only room for six verses on the record, but uh, but it was written to to uh, add verses to it. a little bit of the background of that song. Uh, ben Samberg, his real name, uh, was a songwriter before he ever made records himself. But he would he would write funny songs, and uh, he occasionally get some of them recorded. And in 1931, he wrote a song called "Sweet Violets." Mm-hmm. sweet violets sweeter than all the roses that's how the chorus went it was a waltz like shaving cream uh-huh. and shaving cream was first written in the 30s as kind of a, a an attempt to to, to uh, reproduce the success of sweet violets which was uh benny until shaving cream came along that was uh, certainly benny's best known most popular song so he was trying to reproduce that, and it just happened that uh, that was the song that we came across. And to modern, to to the ears of a younger generation, it's a little funnier than Sweet violets
0: mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: So. So that's uh that's that's how that started, and so. It was a. Trying to develop something to wind up my live performances with uh, that, that made me think, oh, I, I I can sing shaving cream myself. So sure, so I did. Yeah.
0: You know uh, what's amazing? There are a lot of different uh, there are a lot of different aspects to what you do. Number one, I think, is exposing people to stuff they haven't heard before. Number two is giving them some of the old hits, and, and but also uh, playing stuff that you love, and then helping make careers an entire career i mean you know others as well but weird al is just this huge example of this massive impact that you know what some people might not some people might not necessarily understand the importance of your show but especially if they didn't hear it and if it's not wasn't part of their life growing up and again i i still feel horrible that it wasn't part of mine because it would have been the perfect show for me But just the way it went. That's exactly right. But Weird Al was probably my biggest influence. I became best friends with my best friend because of Weird Al. So if it wasn't for you, you know, we wouldn't have this just massive, important comedic figure. And we'd also have this guy who's doing quote unquote novelty music, but knocking it out of the park somehow every time and getting better as he does it. Um... Yeah,
1: that's right. Well, uh, I didn't, I didn't set out to create him, but I certainly, he came to my attention and I realized that he was very good, better than just about anybody else who I knew about, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly of his age. So I helped him all I could, played his stuff frequently and uh, kind of watched his career develop. I mean, for a, in the early years, I certainly was very important in launching his career. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, eventually, eventually, he got played on MTV and uh, kind of uh, went to other areas. But uh, it all started with me, and he's been uh, pretty good at acknowledging that when sure. people ask him. Has
0: he ever indicated so, what some of the early songs that he listened to on your show were? I mean, I know that he was a big fan of Spike Jones and, and Stan Freeberg. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, he mentions those. Uh, the the core artists of my show is who he mentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Sherman probably more than the others mm-hmm. because that that would have led him into doing parodies, For which sure. is what what got him going.
0: Um, so I know that again when I when I spoke to Dan Pasternak, he he asked that I specifically uh, you know bring up since we unfortunately lost Stan freeberg recently just to talk about his influence and just i mean i know that you were a great lover of his work and obviously you know a friend of his so i i don't know maybe, maybe you could talk to talk a little bit to his impact on the world of of comedy and comedy music
1: okay well uh he made novelty singles starting uh, in 1951. John and Marsha was yeah. the first under his own name. And then, well, I'll tell you how I first heard Freeberg. I, I, I think I heard John and Marsha, uh, some friends of ours had a TV and they, uh, somebody was doing uh, John and Marsha on TV using Freeberg's record and using, some sort of puppets to okay. be John and Marcia. Okay. and I kind—I kind of remember that, but didn't know who who Freeberg was at that time. But mm. then my mother, she loved Dragnet on radio before it was on TV, mm-hmm. and so somewhere on on the radio or from at a friend's house, she heard Freeberg's record of Saint George and the Dragonet, and she immediately bought a copy and brought it home. Mm-hmm. So that's how I first became aware of Freeberg, and I—I uh, realized right away that. Uh, this was brilliant. And uh, even though comedy was just one of many things that I was into at that time, sure. I certainly was aware of uh, Freeberg's further works and uh, sometimes would buy buy some. Uh, so when he did uh, The Yellow Rose of Texas, uh, mm-hmm. I certainly was very much aware of that. Uh, Banana Boat and uh, Heartbreak Hotel and uh, and, uh, eventually the old payola roll blues, I actually heard that on, on our local top 40 station. Really, i only heard it once, but <laughs> they did play it and, uh, went out and got that one. And, uh, eventually, of course, his albums, I kept uh, following his work, was aware of his commercials, uh, heard at least a couple of the Stan Freeberg shows when they were first broadcast on CBS and, uh, I couldn't quite afford the album that came out of those at that time. Uh-huh. I mean, double LP—that was—that <laughs> was something you maybe got for Christmas. Right, at that right, time. right. Uh, but but anyway, I was very much aware of him, and uh, when when the opportunity came to have him on my show, I was totally delighted.
0: It's uh, his is um, one of those types of comedy that we—it's got this weird dichotomy of sharp, biting, almost angry satire with some of the goofiest comedy fronting it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So a green Christmas, of course, that a, a very much misunderstood record for a while. Mm-hmm. People thought it was sacrilegious because it was making fun of our observances of Christmas. Uh-huh. But uh, they totally missed his point. Was that the reason uh, he was making fun of and ridiculing some of our Christmas celebrations? Was that he thought it took our attention away from the real meaning of Christmas? Right. I mean, he was he, he was a Christian. He was a uh, and he he didn't like to see Christianity scorned.
0: Right. Right. That, that, I feel like that that ends up being that that's the risk that guys like him were willing to take. And I think that's what makes him such interesting artists, too, is just yes. being so willing to, to have people toss some bullets your way, uh, you know, at least verbally. Right. That's that's a huge mm-hmm. risk. Um, yes. I did have a couple, uh, I, I asked a few people online if they had any questions for you. Number one, w- <laughs> the first question somebody asked is, what was so special about the corner of Pico and Sepulveda? Which I thought was a pretty funny question. Um, <laughs> why that was so okay. important enough to make a <laughs> that that became a song.
1: Uh, well, I know the story of how it was uh, written. Uh-huh. Uh, In those days, before they built the Santa Monica Freeway, if you wanted to, if you lived in, say, Beverly Hills or someplace on the west side of Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and you wanted to go to the beach, you had to take Pico Boulevard or Olympic Boulevard. But Pico was this particular Eddie Maxwell who wrote the words to that song. He would take his kids to the beach and he'd drive on Pico. And at the corner of Pico and Sepulveda, they'd often have to wait a long time at the stoplight. In addition to two busy streets, there was also at that time train tracks that crossed right through the middle of that intersection. So you could get stuck at Mm. Pico and Sepulveda for maybe five minutes or so. Uh So uh, Eddie, the way he explained it, one day started banging on the steering wheel (laughs) as they waited, and he had these impatient kids with him, and he'd go, pico Sepulveda pico ansipulveda, and the kids seemed to enjoy that, so he went home and wrote some more words uh, about different streets in Los Angeles, and uh, th- then he happened to know Jewel Stein, quite famous distinguished songwriter and he was able to talk jewel stein into writing a tune for the words and so they had something that uh, freddie martin the orchestra leader got uh, interested in and uh, decided to record it but uh, freddie was normally recording for rca victor records for some reason they weren't interested in that song because they thought it would only sell in los angeles <laughs> right, but right. however uh, there was another little record company associated with the ambassador hotel where a uh, freddie martin often played and uh he got he got to put pico and sepulveda out on that label yeah so that's how that's how the song came into being uh around 1965 uh, i was making one of my usual visits visits to the salvation army Mm -hmm. uh, the one in santa monica uh, which was on olympic at that time and i found that record and i thought oh that that's got to be curious a song about Pico and Sepulveda, that that intersection is just right near here, so I wonder what that's about. So I took it home, and I enjoyed it, and uh, played it for my friends, and they thought it was uh, interesting too, and uh, so five years later, the opportunity comes to do the Dr. Demento show and play oddities from my collection, and I arrived at that one, and uh, the audience ate it up. They loved it. So that's how that came to be, and uh, eventually, the Rota Rooter Good Time Christmas Band, which uh, was uh, the first unsolicited tapes that I played on the show, mm-hmm. uh, they, in gratitude, recorded an instrumental version of Pico and Sepulveda, which right. I've used as my theme song ever since.
0: That's amazing. I, uh, you know, this it, it's striking me. I, I, I do wonder. Uh, did you ever have any? <clears throat> not necessarily submissions but discover anything of the like local comedian variety like stuff that might have ended up in the Salvation Army bin but was actually for some artist who only worked out of one particular city because I, I found a lot of stand-up like that but I don't know if there's a lot of uh, novelty songs that were maybe not hits at all but just like a local record on a local record oh,
1: yeah sure yeah here and there mm-hmm. uh, I, mean, I mean like songs for instance about uh, local college football players
0: mm-hmm. okay
1: or or other athletes, Uh, sometimes songs by athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like uh, Ron Say, who played third base for the Dodgers for many years, made Uh a record. He's not much of a singer, but uh-huh. uh, he. Somebody wrote a song called Third Base Bag," and he managed to get through it. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so they, I guess, they sold that record at Dodger Stadium for a year or two. Okay. <laughs> and I got one. So that's amazing. And, uh, there's lots of records like that. Lots of records by local DJs who fancy themselves singers sure. or maybe comedians will record a comedy routine or uh, often a Christmas routine, something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's there's local records of all kinds. Uh, Some by local bands that don't necessarily have any great localism in what they do, but uh, they're just known in one area, so Mm -hmm. their record only got distributed in one area. But, of course, records like that sometimes uh, wander somehow to other parts of the country. People will move, and then uh, after they've lived in another city for 20 years, uh, uh, their kids give their records to the Salvation Army. Sure, sure. Including some that were bought somewhere else. And uh, mean nothing to the city that they moved to, but they still had them. Yeah, you know, there, there's been stuff like that all through the history of records. Sure, and it takes
0: somebody with a mind like your, like yours, and sometimes mine. Sometimes I actually have a brain to think it through it, to to pick these these oddities out and, and, and expose them to people. I mean, you know, we turn because we, we like instant gratification. We'll turn to YouTube. Now we had Napster for a couple of years, but uh, you know, before that we had a lot of people's only access to good comedy music was either their parents or you, uh, which, so, I mean, that's if, if nothing else that you were this massive pop culture filter that gave so many people their, even their comedic tastes. A friend of mine, is named Zaki, Zaki Hassan. He's a great uh, film critic. Uh, He lived in Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War, and he was telling me that uh, Armed Forces Radio was his only link to American culture. So because of that, he had your show to listen to, and that is is strictly where his sense of humor comes from, just your show.
1: Okay. Yeah, I've talked to a few other people who heard my show over there. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: It's just, it's, but it's, it's just crazy that that's, that's where they get it. They get it from, you know, the mind of this guy who's got you've clearly got this archival mind where you want to sort of, you've logged it all away in your head, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I don't know if you ever plan to, to put all of it down on paper at some point, but uh, I mean, I actually, you know, now would be a good time to talk about, uh, if you want uh, the documentary.
1: Yes. Well, uh, for the last couple of years, uh, I've been quite involved in uh, the, the making of a documentary about me uh, called Under the Smogberry Trees. Uh, some people came to us a couple of years ago and uh, said, we'd like to make this movie about you, and we'll launch a Kickstarter campaign to get it going. And uh, so they did. Kickstarter was successful, and uh, we have... 80 hours of footage interviews with me and with uh, lots of different people that I played on the show from Weird Al and uh, also with Jimmy Fallon. He was happy to be interviewed because Mm -hmm. he was a huge fan of the show when he was a kid. And uh, so we've got lots of people on that but we need uh, we need to we're not going to do another kickstarter i don't think but we we do need some more funding to to get it finished to get it edited and to license the music which can be very expensive
0: right no i mean i imagine that's the hardest part of it yeah. Wow. Well,
1: but uh, it's the project is still very much alive and we certainly uh, hope to get it done soon, but I can't I cannot give you a, a date.
0: Sure, sure. Well, I'm I'm excited to see it. That sounds that sounds amazing. Do you ever I mean, do you have plans to put to paper anything equivalent to the kind of stuff you've written for uh, you know, classical and 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 other music?
1: Well, I've been people have been urging me to do my autobiography for years mm-hmm. and I was kind of st- starting to to get to it when this uh, film project came sure. into my life so I concentrated on that for a while but yeah. uh, we've out of all the interviews that I did for that we could probably uh, that would probably be a head start towards uh, getting a book written so
0: I would imagine yeah uh, that
1: that's that's a lot that's uh alive too
0: that's exciting. I, Again,
1: I can't give you a date. No,
0: of course, of course. No, <laughs> I'll just put you to it, to it right now. I need a date and I need a time. Um, uh, so everybody can find you on drdemento.com, of course.
1: That's right. Thank you so much. Oh, yes. absolutely.
0: Uh, Twitter? Are you, do you have a presence there? Oh, I,
1: there? I, I post, I, I'm not terribly active on Twitter, but I uh, always post a reminder about the show every Saturday morning and occasionally something else as it comes along. Uh, uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, tell you a, a small secret here. You can find me on Facebook under my real name, which is Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T, Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. So look for that on Facebook and you'll you'll find me. There's what's called the Dr. Demento official Facebook page, which is maintained by the good people at the Funny Music Project, the mm-hmm. FUMP for short. <laughs> and uh, so they maintain it. And, uh, uh, kick all the spammers off and things like that. But uh, so uh, people will ask me questions and to the best of my time and ability, I answer them. So, and and people can, that, that's become a, a good place for people to request stuff for my show.
0: For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's amazing. I, I just want to make sure that I stress that people should make sure that they, they listen to your show every Saturday.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah every Saturday but you can hear it anytime and you can hear the older shows anytime if you if you miss the show it's always there.
0: That's right you've got how far back does your archive go?
1: Well uh, 1970 there's Sheesh. a couple of shows from even before I got my own show. There's a, a couple of my as of me as a guest on Stephen's show and mm-hmm. uh, you can you can hear those too and uh, hear what I sounded like when I was uh, playing the obscure, early rock songs along with the funny stuff and uh, it's all there. And uh, so you can pretty much pick and choose. There's the demented music database Mm -hmm. uh, on which you can go that dmdb.org dmdb.org. And you can key in a song title and uh, find all the shows that I played it on. Wow. And that will often help if you want to know who did the song be prepared. You can mm-hmm. just key in Be Prepared, and it'll tell you immediately Tom Lehrer.
0: That's amazing.
1: Or you can key in Tom Lehrer, and it will name all the songs that I played by him and how many times I played each one.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm glad somebody else is doing that work for you because that, that's just too much mm-hmm. to think about.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, we have an official historian. His name is Jeff Morris, and uh, he does a wonderful job
0: well thanks to people like him for for making making that stuff available thank you for everything that you've done not just for comedy on vinyl obviously but for comedy in general i could okay jason i could you're keep you here more for than a million welcome years. <laughs> but um right. uh thank you so much for doing the show and for talking to me and everybody thank you for listening and as always have a good thing
1: and don't forget to stay de-mented.
0: I listen to other podcasts that sound like this. Today on the Pistach Cast, we're going to be talking about the pistachio's closest cousin, the mango. When you could be listening to this. Do you think there's ever been a moment on the show where one of them accidentally reveals there's a body in his trunk? <laughs> <laughs> like he's just so enthused to talk about cars, like it's an amazing car. Like I've hit twelve bodies in there. Like, you you, you can dig things. them down. You can take them down to the pier. No one will even know. Listen to the Dan and Jays Comedy Hour podcast every
1: Monday at www.danandjay.com.